Psalm 261. Jeff announced that, and as always, our singing is so exciting and so spirited, and we're so delighted that God has allowed us the privilege of voice and the opportunity to use it to exalt His praises and to magnify Him in truly a remarkable way. We do content come to, of course, a very important part of our service, as always, to reflect upon and give some thought to a section of the Word of God. And I would invite us tonight to consider a lesson I've entitled, The Weeping Prophet of Judah. As we, over the next few moments, cast a very noteworthy spotlight on one of the Old Testament prophets again, we have found our reading, have we not? This past week has begun, by no means ended, but at least has begun, this book of Jeremiah. We, of course, concluded the book of Isaiah not too many days ago and have read some in the Minor Prophets, but now, in terms of chronology, we have come to Jeremiah. Another one of the lengthy prophetical books of the Old Testament, a total of 52 chapters, so we shall be in that for several days to come. But tonight's lesson, I would invite us to at least begin by building it in the following fashion. Those prophets of the Old Testament truly are remarkable, and we owe them a tremendous debt. Israel so often found herself, of course, wayward, unfaithful, sinful, and yet in the midst of this people, God called these prophets. Apart from Jonah, as far as we know, they were all brave and courageous. They met the obstacles before them often with the very nature of the threat of their own lives, and yet they were that devoted and that dedicated to the cause of the God of heaven, and they proclaimed His word ferociously. We shall find none, not only is that true of Jeremiah, he often found himself in some very difficult places because of it. I thought we might be interested to notice that some of those prophets have descriptive names that go with them, or at least descriptions that you and I can keep in mind to remind us somewhat of what they were about. For instance, we might readily remember Joel is known as the prophet of Pentecost. If nothing else about Joel is recollected, that thought should come before us. He prophesied in a verbatim fashion of what would unfold on the day of Pentecost. And Peter quoted him in Acts 2 beginning in verse 16. When you and I think about the prophet Hosea, immediately we should remember he's the weeping prophet of Israel. We find in 14 scintillating chapters descriptions reminding us of the terrible tragedy that befell his life, his wife unfaithful. He had to go and buy her back from prostitution. We studied that some two, two Sunday nights ago. You'll notice though to that list we could add the Messianic prophet known as Isaiah. 66 chapters and in that book time after time references to Christ and His kingdom and His work are found. There is actually another prophet yet to come. We shall encounter him in due course, and actually per square inch, if you please, there are more prophecies about Jesus in his little book than there is in Isaiah. But we'll get to that in a few Sundays. For right now, maybe one final observation. Jeremiah is sometimes known as the weeping prophet of Judah. Already you can gain a feeling of some of the matters no doubt to come before us tonight. As we begin that, I thought it'd be wise to reflect on the person of Jeremiah first, and in so doing to prepare us for a lesson built around this weeping prophet of Judah. As we begin, you might notice the final thought on that slide is this one. It is often true, I suppose, that men, the masculine gender, is such that they often are discouraged from tears. 
they're supposed to be strong and solemn and they're not supposed to give in to crying and they're not supposed to give in to that kind of emotional response. Now, we might notice that's not found in the Bible, but it is, of course, something our society seems to tell us. But in light of that, let's consider Jeremiah, the weeping prophet of Judah. There were some times, in fact, many of them that moved him to tears. What were these times? And could they, in fact, speak volumes to you and me today? As you and I begin this slide, I'd submit that in the book of Jeremiah, it's 52 chapters, we find some of the most moving drama anywhere in the Old Testament. We find a man with whom many of us can identify. He describes his situation so thoroughly that we can imagine ourselves as if we were almost there watching him. And yet, in light of those events, those powerful messages lead us to that next statement. Truly among the prophets, we find Jeremiah was a man who was emotional. Things bothered him. It was such that in his response to these matters, often the reaction of the people toward him was such that it moved him in a number of compelling ways. We shall find that likely more carefully next Sunday. But at least for now, note this. The opening stanza of this book, the opening chapter, sets before us two very critical ideas. Verse number 7, God very clearly to Jeremiah said, Whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Jeremiah wasn't given the liberty nor the luxury of proclaiming anything other than what God had delivered him to say. And then two verses later, Behold, God said, I have put my words in thy mouth. You and I can notice carefully, then Jeremiah proclaimed God's word. He didn't proclaim merely God's feelings or God's thoughts or God's suggestions. He proclaimed the unadulterated and powerful word of God. He fell in line with those prophets, those other inspired individuals of ancient lore. And as they proclaimed that word of God, that's what he was commissioned to state. It is with that in mind, I would ask you to notice those words that he so powerfully proclaimed so often fell upon deaf ears, ears that were uninterested to respond in favor to it. They didn't want to, in fact, do what God told them to do. Case in point, look at some of these phrases. In Jeremiah 1 verse 17, God had to forewarn His prophet. God speaking with directness said to Jeremiah, Don't let them dismay you. D-I-S-M-A-Y. It's easy sometimes in the midst of sin, in the midst of rebellious activity to be dismayed, but God forewarned Jeremiah, be not dismayed at them. Sometimes today you and I can become a bit discouraged, perhaps even on the border of dismayal, when we give thought to sometimes those whom we love, especially and they're uninterested in what is so meaningful, such as the salvation of their soul. Be not dismayed, but look at this description. And these are but a sampling of the ones that might have been chosen from the book. In Jeremiah 7, 28, God directly to Jeremiah said, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God. What a chilling description of His own people. This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God. God to Jeremiah said, They don't want to hear me anymore. To that list, you can add Jeremiah 13, 9. 
God specifically to Jeremiah said, I will mar the iniquity of Judah and of Israel. God made observation, did He not, of the fact that their sin was abundant and I will mar them because of it. That word mar means to to tarnish. It means to remove to a lower level of, of, of characterization, if you will. That was about to happen to them. Perhaps to that finally, Jeremiah 29.10. Their sin was such that God said, I'm going to send them into captivity. Babylon is coming. And for 70 years, I shall allow them to be captive. Listen to what God is speaking then about this people. And notice Jeremiah lived in the age and in the time in which he told the people, this is what's coming. If you don't repent, Jeremiah lived to see all of that happen. And we're going to find as we study Lamentations that his tears wept greatly there as he watched his people winding their way into captivity. He actually had to watch them leave the city as the Babylonian overlords forced them off into the final array of captivity. Can you imagine watching that? As you close that slide with me, we do find in the midst of all of these forces and influences, it did seem Jeremiah became a bit discouraged himself at one time. It's found in the 20th chapter of this book. Verse number 9 says, Jeremiah chapter 20, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more his name. But his word was in mine heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not contain. Jeremiah seems immediately to have reflected upon that state of discouragement. Even though I thought about quitting, even though I thought about giving up, once I immediately reflected upon it, I said, It's too important, it's too significant. And the law of the Lord is too vital and too needful. I cannot be quiet. Among other things, I would hope that if any of us ever become dismayed, discouraged at the thought of Christianity and we begin to wonder, is it worth it? May we quickly rethink the matter and assert like Jeremiah, I cannot contain. Notice Jeremiah would of course later in the book remind us how worthy it is to be faithful. But for now, closing that slide we find these two observations. Jeremiah found himself thrown in prison simply because he was a preacher of truth. Those people to whom he preached, they were so incessant and oppositional to it that they actually had him cast into the dungeon more than once. We shall arrive at that in chapters 32 to 39. However, you'll notice in the light of all of this, Jeremiah wept. Oh, how he wept. Tears streaming down his face as he thought about the circumstances in which he was and the people before whom he spoke. I would call to your attention perhaps most readily, not only the lesson text that was read a moment ago as Brother Glenn read that for us, but also that text in Lamentations 2.11. Again, Jeremiah in that text of Jeremiah 9 says, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah said, if my head were full of waters, I could cry day and night all the time for the slain of the daughter of my people. The tears of Jeremiah. In fact, I'm told that the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament actually has this as its title for the book of Lamentations, the tears of Jeremiah. 
That little five-chapter book of Lamentations highlights for us the emotional, the weeping response of this weeping prophet of Judah. What is it that made Jeremiah weep so? What prompted him to this response? Well, among other things, it must start with this first one. You and I can see that Jeremiah's tears flowed primarily because of sin. Primarily because of it. As he looked upon the people of Judah, the people who of course had been in a covenant relationship with God, a people who throughout the ages past had been motivated by prophets and other individuals alike. In the days of Jeremiah, and he began his prophetical labors about 626 B.C., and as he did so, these were some very difficult years lying ahead. Consider these thoughts with me. Jeremiah understood well the nature of sin. He understood it thoroughly. He understood it completely. He understood what it was in terms of its consequences that would come therefrom. Look at some of these verses. In Jeremiah 2 verse 22, early on in that prophetical book, we notice there that the interesting statement again about the iniquity of the people and the what it brought to the very mindset of Jeremiah. Jeremiah loved them and he cared for them. And their sin agitated him so because they rebelled against the God that loved them. This is one of the things that brought Jeremiah to tears. In fact, along that line, notice in Jeremiah 3.25, arguably one of the most graphic verses on sin anywhere in the Old Testament, we find this statement. Jeremiah 3 verse 25 the statement about what sin was and what it brings and what it does. Jeremiah highlighted in a very powerful way, not only we but our fathers have sinned from our youth even to this day. And notice as the verse started, we lie down in our shame. You see, sin was a shameful thing. It was then and it still is. And isn't that one of the things that the devil tries to conceal? He doesn't want sin to be appreciated as a shameful thing. He tries to highlight what it brings to one's person, one's reputation, one's notoriety among the community, if you will. And yet, we lie down in our shame. Notice it also brings confusion, Jeremiah 3.25. The people of Judah were confused, sometimes falling into idolatry, sometimes falling into these other activities of shameful report. And yet, that kind of confusion came about because of sin. Those who are right-minded, those that are strong in the faith, often they are the ones least confused. For they follow an absolute word, a word that's answered their questions and their queries. Notice that confusion, Jeremiah 3.25, maybe leads us to that text of 1 John 3.4. Linking it to the New Testament in a powerful fashion. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Jeremiah knew that, but the people seemingly had failed to understand it. And for this reason, Jeremiah cried and he wept and he was moved into great consideration. Wouldn't it be fair at this point to say, in terms of those who care about sin, it's only the righteous really. You and I are the ones that are moved to tears because of what we see about us in terms of sinful and shameful activity. We know it dooms souls and we understand that it alienates from God. 
The world either doesn't know or doesn't care. You and I as the righteous, we're the ones that care. You and I care when there are problems in the nation that we know are so opposed to the things of God. You and I are the ones that care when in our families someone makes a choice that is so burdensome and so inappropriate. You and I are the ones that care because we love them and we love their soul and we would more than anything else want them to make that choice just like Jeremiah wanted you to, to make. But they rebelled and didn't make it. Jeremiah cared. Can you not see some of these thoughts? The unrighteous is described in Jeremiah 9 verse 2. That was read in our hearing just a moment ago. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Notice also verse 3. And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth. I've often thought that surely is one of the saddest verses in all of Jeremiah. They're strong, all right, but not for truth. Why don't we pause for a moment and say, it doesn't matter how much other strength the person has. If he or she's not strong for truth, they're weak as branch water. Being strong for truth is the only ultimate strength that has any final bearing, isn't it? Here, you and I notice, they were valiant all right, but not for truth. May you and I at the Pippin congregation, may you and I in our lives individually be valiant for truth, valiant in the way of righteousness. You'll notice in addition to that, we can make note of 1 John 5, 17 that links this to the New Testament again. All unrighteousness is sin, we're told in that famous passage. Interesting. Perhaps one final thought on that slide. Jeremiah was moved to tears because of their sin. And yet, isn't it shameful that we have reflections later in the book as well as in the book of Ezekiel that here was a people they didn't care, as we noted a moment ago. As they went off into captivity, God said, Is, is it a light thing to you, all you that pass by? A light thing? Notice they were uncaring, unconsiderate, and uncompassionate. The sin didn't bother them and agitate them. Maybe this would be the right time for us to remind ourselves, may we always have a conscience that is agitated by sin. May we have a mentality so that it bothers us. I hope we all can't sleep well if we're not right with God. I hope not a one of us can have a nice, restful evening of sleep as long as things are not right with our soul. Notice that Jeremiah couldn't sleep very well, apparently. He cried so much because of the people singing. It is true, isn't it, that there surely is a time when you and I might be brought to tears. This is not a time to ask for a show of hands, but in your own family or in your own life, are there times you can remember you were brought to tears because of the decision someone else made? A decision of unfaithfulness? A decision of, in fact, disarray relative to the things of God? I'm sure many of us probably can think of something along that line. May we continue to have that kind of tender attitude toward the truth of God and be valiant for it. Jeremiah's tears prompted in part by sin. What else caused him to cry? 
may we suggest there are some more things in this book, even near the outset of it. Let's look at the next one. Not only was Jeremiah's tears prompted by the characteristic of the people's sin, we notice that on other occasions his tears were prompted by the suffering that he bore. The individual suffering that he bore. Consider some of these thoughts. He knew very well what sin was going to bring. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and again in chapter 11, he in fact himself was forewarned that this people thought he was a traitor. Jeremiah loved them so deeply and yet they considered him a traitor. Doesn't seem right or fair, does it? His concern was so profound and so deep and yet they thought he was just a turncoat. That's the kind of treatment he received from the people whom he loved so much. He wanted their faithfulness. He wanted them, in fact, to have the kind of trust that he had in God. Look at what that hardship developed. In Jeremiah chapter 14, verse number 10, note, note the wording of this verse. Thus saith the Lord unto this people, Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. Jeremiah had the challenge, the commissioning by God to state words like that before this people. God's going to remember your iniquity and He's going to visit for your sin. And we understand well that that premise and that promise from God has not wavered or wandered. Sin must be forgiven. Otherwise, of course, it shall meet its guilt. Not only that, consider this. What about the ultimate end that did come, the suffering that he witnessed? As we noted earlier, you can even imagine it as the book of Lamentations comes before us. Jeremiah actually sat on the hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And he was there as he watched the Babylonian individuals carry off his kinsmen, his fellow Jewish people. And off into captivity they went. Jeremiah had to watch it. No wonder in Lamentations 2.11 he describes the tears falling down his face. Sometimes you and I are led to tears when we think about the hardship that you or I or a loved one faces. A hardship that might be described in words like this. Sometimes the choices that others make, you and I know that they're not good choices but we also realize that when the time comes, they must pay the piper, if you please. It doesn't ease the burden from our heart at much when we realize that those kinds of ends and those kinds of results have followed from their decisions. It can break our heart. Tears might be shed. Again, many of us may have done it. Those kinds of decisions and choices are just an artifact of what Jeremiah exhibited not only that, notice this. In Jeremiah 11, verse 14, we have one of the most startling statements, I suppose, of the book. Three times in the book of Jeremiah, this statement is found. Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. Think about that. You and I know the power of prayer and we understand the far-reaching implications it can have for the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But God told Jeremiah, don't you pray for this people. Three times he was told, do not pray for them. How can that make any sense to us? 
If we revisit the context, we find it very well. Their heart was as hard as an adamant stone. They were not going to repent in the current state. And God said, as long as they will not repent, it'll do you no good to pray for them. Today, and it's still true, you and I may with urgency pray for those whom we love and those of whom we're so concerned. And often we do here in our, in our collective services. But we know that in their state of being lost, they must make some decisions. God won't save them in that state. Isn't it shocking here, though, to hear God say, don't you pray for them. As those verses come before us with that kind of message, doesn't it paint a picture of just how hard the heart of Judah had become? Maybe that hardness leads us to that final statement. How do you and I react to circumstances comparable to this one? Do you and I shed tears when we see and witness those kinds of things? Aren't we commanded to weep with those that weep? When there's someone who finds him or herself in a circumstance, we should be ready for that brother, that sister in Christ, that individual, if that's the appropriate thing to sympathize with them, the tears of Jeremiah. Maybe those tears take us to that last element on that slide at least. You'll notice that this statement is also very apparent as we look at these opening chapters of Jeremiah in particular. There was another thing that moved Jeremiah so greatly, moving him in ways like this. I've entitled it False Influences. Jeremiah, it seems, on so many occasions, by the very wording and impetus of God, encouraged the people to be wary of some who were their leaders, some who were not as they should have been. Jeremiah 5.31. In the closing verse to that fifth chapter, we notice this interesting statement. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. My people love to have it so. Here the prophets were prophesying with falsehood. They were not speaking the things that God had delivered, and the priests were encouraging them, patting them on the back. And God said, my people are enjoying every minute of it. Doesn't that remind us that among the other things that prompted Jeremiah's soul was a people who had been led by these teachers, these influences that were false and improper, these, these situations being described in that text and a host of others. I would ask you to look at this. The leaders are described in an interesting word. I've actually put it in italics. Jeremiah 10 verse 21. Listen to this statement as it reflects upon those that were the actual leaders of ancient Judah. For the pastors are become brutish and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they shall not prosper and all their flocks shall be scattered. Isn't that a telling passage? Among other things, it reminds us there is a proper usage of the word pastor. And our world in this modern era has so misused and misapplied that term. The vast majority of the denominational world considers a preacher as a pastor. When the New Testament does not identify it so, a pastor, as this would suggest, and the New Testament more clearly identifies as a reference for otherwise what's known as an elder, a gentleman known as a presbyter, an overseer, a bishop, also is a gentleman.
that himself is, of course, in that very category of being, of course, an elder. You might notice this pastor, he goes on to say, they are become brutish. That word brutish, as you can see, identifies a matter of stubborn refusal. They were, in fact, bent on doing what they wanted, despite whatever it may have meant for implications on the people. My pastors, the pastors, are brutish. It is a sad thing to be stubborn in a fashion like that, isn't it? That kind of description, not seeking God, the refusal that went with it, led Jeremiah more than once to appreciate just how sad such a state of affairs was. As you can see on the top of this slide, it seems that the Apostle Paul fell in line with an understanding just as clearly as Jeremiah did. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul met with the elders, the pastors now, the real pastors of the church in Ephesus, you may recall that beginning in verse 28 of that chapter, he himself said, For three years I preached and I ceased not to preach the word of God and I cried. I wept in tears over the state of affairs. That would be very much the case in Ephesus and elsewhere. Would it be proper for elders, for you and I, to shed tears as we think about the church and what she might face in years ahead? Would you and I be entirely right to have concern over it to the point that we might in fact cry? There's not a doubt in my mind there wouldn't be anything inappropriate about that. Paul did it. In fact, in the New Testament, we find on other occasions he was moved to tears. That kind of discussion closes that by noting that you and I can understand that be it sin, be it the circumstances surrounding those choices that others have made and the consequences and suffering that they face, or where it might be evil influences, it can be enough to make you cry. I'm sure many of us have thought about what was the case perhaps a century ago and what seems to be the case now relative to certain entities and institutions. And it's not like it once was. It is enough to make you cry, isn't it? It's a sad thing. But yet, like Jeremiah, you and I must continue the effort and the matter of steadfastness. It might well be that finally... I thought it would be at least well to note a good reason. So far, all the things we've noted were bad things, I suppose, in terms of making one cry. Did Jeremiah ever cry in, in matters of rejoicing? Did he ever cry for what you and I would call a good reason? It would seem so. In Jeremiah 15, verse number 16, we have this rather interesting and very powerful passage. Jeremiah 15, verse number 16. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Now notice, that fell in the very context in which Jeremiah was so moved by these other things he was seeing about him. And yet now, he could so clearly make reference to a sense of rejoicing that filled his heart and his being. It was the Word of God, wasn't it? I know that as you and I reflect upon or as we have opportunity to study it, we are moved by it and we appreciate the authority inherent in it. But look again at the wording of how Jeremiah stated that. Jeremiah rejoiced. 
He literally rejoiced. In the midst of these other influences, he nonetheless could rejoice. I'd like to share that with us as well this evening, for isn't that also a very important matter? You and I and our families, don't allow the news to move you too much. You know as well as I that God is in control. Jeremiah, as well as the prophet, the other prophets remind us that the God of heaven rules in the kingdoms of men. Jeremiah 4.25, or rather Daniel 4.25, reminds us of that truth. And sometimes as we watch the news, it may lead us to tears, but let's not forget now to be balanced, to not be overwhelmed by the negative, but to remember there is a shining beacon that comes through it, a beacon that in fact is the standard of that Word of God. And there is good cause for rejoicing then. Not only that, notice this next statement. Jeremiah's reaction in light of the Word of God was the very opposite to those people that were around him. We noted a moment ago that the people were so often resistant to what he had to say. In fact, we might well bring to our mind that statement of chapter 6, verse 16 as we prepare for this next observation. Jeremiah 6, 16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. They were admonished by the God of heaven, Walk in the old paths, seek those old paths that are vital and necessary for truth. But their quick reply was, We will not walk therein. To that people that was so resistant, Jeremiah maintained his fidelity. And though all the world could crumble about us to unfaithfulness, may you and I, in steadfastness and in valiancy for the truth, remain dedicated and wholly devoted to God. Maybe that highlight is seen there in chapter 18, verse 18. That is in the midst of a passage that in parts quoted in, in the book of Romans in the New Testament. But in verse number 18 of that chapter, we notice it says, Then said they, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with a tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Did you hear what the people were saying? Let's devise devices against Jeremiah. In effect, they were at times wanting to kill him, the very prophet of God. And notice their reasoning as that statement put before us, let us not give heed to any of His words. That's a shocking thing in some ways, isn't it? In fact, that plot will thicken as we arrive at verse chapters 26 to 28, likely in due course, at least partway next Lord's Day. For right now, the message that Jeremiah still cried to them was this. Maybe you and I should embed in our heart Perhaps commit to memory if we haven't already. Chapter 22, verse 29. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. That was the clarion call that Jeremiah set before them. Hear the word of the Lord. And as we've just noted more than once, that's the message they were unwilling to hear. As Jeremiah set that before them, it was, of course, that message of inspiration, that message of truth and encouragement, and that's what they really needed. Today, you and I need this book, and we need its message, and the world needs it too. 
We know that so many times they, like the people of Jeremiah's day, are not much interested in hearing it. But that shouldn't cease you and me from setting before them a proper example, a right declaration of it. In so doing, we might in fact reach some of them. As you'll notice as that slide closes, you and I are admonished on many occasions similar to the wording of Jeremiah 15, 16. Remember it said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. I sometimes think about the nature of how often we eat, and we enjoy the meals that are set before us three and sometimes more times a day, and we're so thankful for it. And often as we eagerly await those meals, notice there, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. Do you and I intake the Word of God? Do we eat it up, thoroughly digesting it and imparting it into application to our life? I know that we have the desire to do it, and may we incessantly work toward that goal. In Psalm 119, verse 103, we have even the psalmist who echoes a sentiment somewhat similar to that one. The sweetness of the Word of God. And that sweetness that, of course, often is such a wonderful thing as you and I contemplate the way it can impact men and women if it will only be allowed to do it. The tears of Jeremiah tonight we've seen developed, motivated by a number of things. One by one as we've looked at all of them. We've been reminded of a man who was not afraid to come to tears. Sometimes as you and I are overwhelmed by what's about us, it's not inappropriate even for a man to be so emotionally moved by something if it were to come to tears. Sometimes sin can do it. Sin in our life or sin in someone else's that we love and cherish so much. Sometimes it could be what we know they're reacting to, the suffering they feel because of a choice they've made. Sometimes it might be because of leadership that afflicts the church and other things, the falsehood that surrounds it. Sometimes it can be the wonderful rejoicing of that which is the Word of God or the magnitude of His blessings. Have you or I been brought to tears of joy when we've appreciated some good things God has done? I'm sure that many of us can also say a hearty amen to that too. Tonight, what about the station of your life and of mine? The tears of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet of Judah, if sin in your life currently is on the verge of bringing you to tears or has done so, why not do something about it? I don't have the power to make your life such that those tears would no longer be needful, but God can do it. The Lord Jesus Christ can do it. If you will come to Him, He made this promise in Matthew 11 beginning in verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that's almost the verbatim portion of what we found in Jeremiah 6.16. But thanks be unto God that the response is different. They said, we will not walk therein, but the Lord invites us to come and promises us our yoke and our burden will be easy and light. Tonight, if you need to respond in a public way to the call of invitation, perhaps utilizing the tears of Jeremiah to motivate you to make things right between you and your God. 
the plan of salvation demands, if you're an alien sinner, that you believe Jesus to be exactly who He said He was, to repent of your sins, to confess His name as the Son of God, and to be baptized. If you have taken care of that, and for a while you have been a faithful and devoted servant to the Lord, but at this moment you are not, things have divided between you and your God, sin in one way or another has brought a separation, maybe even brought you to tears on some cold and lonely nights. Why not come back to God tonight? Why not, in fact, allow Jesus Christ to wrap His arms of encouragement and comfort around you and bring you back to the faithful fold at His side? If we could help you in that way to pray for you in a public way, we'd be delighted to do it. We would only encourage you to let us know the way we can be of assistance and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.